Uh, happiness is the theme we've been covering this month. And in fact, this is a theme that's been uh, talked about across sort of circles. And so there's all these different writers that I've been referring to along the way and pulling bits and pieces because they're all talking about the same challenge that's in our Western culture. That is, we've lost the art of knowing how to be happy. And so we've got Hugh McKay, sociologist, Scott Peck and George Valent. He's done the, the longest longitudinal aging study in the history of our world. And they're writing things that are similar. We've got Russ Harris. He's a psychologist. And, and also Martin Seligman, a psychologist and an educator. They're saying similar things. And even our economist, Clive Hamilton, have been writing about the challenge of happiness. You see, we all think we know where we can be happy, but too often, like the drama sketch you've just seen, it's one stimulation of one momentary high after the next, after the next. Where is the good life to be found? And so, a few weeks ago, we unpacked the idea that we're all born with wanter machines and happiness meters, and the way in which we've framed up our community, and in fact, our world, is that we figure that we should always be on this high. Our happiness meters should always be hitting high. That is, we've got this estimation that our lives around about us should be perfect, and they should be always high. But this is unreasonable, because life isn't always like that. Life can be a great challenge. And the intuitive thing that comes from the moment we're born is that we think that if we satisfy our wanters, that we'll be happy. In fact, we even have sort of commercial giants like Coca-Cola saying, you know what? Open the can and be happy. Can you see the can here? It's even got a smiley face. And just underneath the smiley face, it says, open happiness. And they're suggesting that if you drink this product, it will make you feel happy. But where is the real good fuel to be found? One of the counterintuitive things that, that we estimate is that we think that satisfying our desire will make us happy. But that's not always the case. In fact, Russ Harris, he says in his book, you want to talk about happiness? I want to talk about a rich, full, and meaningful life. That's the kind of life that I'm talking about. How do we get there, though? Who would have thought that in week two, saying no was perhaps one of the ways in which people can actually experience a sense of well-being and happiness? In fact, the idea of actually checking our wanters and making sure that self-discipline and self-control was part of our, our life would actually lead to a sense of being fulfillment. Why? Why on earth would someone want to say no to their wanter? Because deep down, if they believe that they are worth it, if that they have got some value, intrinsic value in their life, then they're more likely to go, you know what? I will actually keep my wanter in check. I won't just satisfy it with whatever it wants because it's not always good for me. In fact, a great theologian and philosopher, Dallas Willard, he said this, one of the greatest things you can do is not to do what you want to do. And so last week, why would anyone want to apply any of those disciplines and sort of keep their wanter in check and go hunting for the good fuel rather than the momentary fuel? Well, it's because they've experienced this deep sense of love. You see, if George Valent would say anything about happiness, he'd say this, happiness is love. If there's one power in this universe that actually changes and transforms our lives, it's love. This idea that I'm going to choose to do something else for another person through no gain of my own, just because of the worth and the value that I see in them. In fact, he says, happiness is only the cart, love is the horse. And if someone's experienced love in their life as a young child or growing up, then they're open to actually cultivate other relationships in their life. 
if, if they've experienced this sense of, hey, I am worth something because someone else has invested their time in me, then they'll surely conclude that I am worth something and I am valuable. And that's why even why I'd want to even apply my wanter and keep it in check and hunt for good stuff. And where we left off last week was simply this. At the center of this universe is not impersonal energy. But could it be that at the center of our universe, there's actually a creative being who actually loves this matter. He says, this matter matters to him. And that every individual in this face, this earth, is of worth and value to him. And he loves. And so God's unyielding desire and force towards us is love. So as I was thinking about this week, about uh, week four of the happiness, where is the good life to be found, I thought I'd, I'd give you the heads up on what all of these different thinkers are saying about if you want to lead a good, rich, meaningful life, this is kind of the bucket list. So you're ready for it to come? So here it is. It goes something like this. If you accept that life is hard and that you have the capacity to face life's cha- challenges and pains, then... Th- the chances are that you will actually be embracing a more rich, full, and meaningful life. If you can control your wanters and you go hunting for the good fuel, that will help you. If you cultivate, really, comes down to loving, intimate relationships, where I'm allowed to trust other people and open up myself to them, and in turn, they can open up their lives to me. It's when I shape my life around the values that are meaningful for me, It's when I engage my strengths and I apply them to the world around about me. It's when I continually live with this sense of challenging myself to grow. And and there's always a a new goal to be set and something to be gained. It's, It's when I belong to something bigger than myself. There's a sense in which my... My life has a sense of meaning and and purpose because it's wrapped up in in something that seems to be bigger than just the solitary me. And it's when people practice being grateful and forgiving. And this is what they're saying in their books. When you have a healthy mind and a body, when you cultivate play and recreation, and down the bottom here, but certainly not the least, and one we're going to pick up on today, is when we serve others. In fact, one 84-year-old gentleman, when he was asked the question, why do you bother getting out of the bed in the morning and swinging your legs out onto the floor? He said this, to live, to work, to learn something that I didn't know yesterday, to enjoy the precious moments with my wife. Seems to capture a lot of those things right there. Let's press this a little bit further though, the idea of serving others. In Hugh McKay's book, the good life, he says simply these words. If you want to live the good life, you need to practice a good life. <laughs> and he says he defines it like this. A life characterized by goodness, a morally praiseworthy life, a life valuable in its impact on others, a life devoted to the common good. When you press him a little bit deeper, he quotes Jesus. He says, actually, These can all be summed up in the words of Jesus, which aren't, he says, unique to Jesus, but this is what he says. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Live by that maxim and you will be serving others. You see, there's something about, we call it altruism, doing good for others that feels good to us. I remember my one and only trip to East Timor, I was on the plane between Darwin and Dili, 
And I struck up a conversation with a gentleman who was over the aisle. You know how you do these things, yeah? And I looked across the aisle and we started talking. I said, well, what are you doing heading to Dili? And he said, actually, I'm working with the Norwegian refuge. I had no idea that there were Norwegians in a refuge in East Timor at that time. And I said, well, what are you doing there? And he said, well, actually, we're just helping. My wife and I, we moved from one place to the next all around the world. And, and we help people. He said, it gets addictive. But now we've got a little child and we can't move as often as we like. So we're kind of just helping out here. I paused for a moment and I said to him, hmm, why do you do what you do? Just one of those casual kind of questions over the highway of an aeroplane. He looked back to me and he said this, because good matters. And I like that. I said, that's good. Good matters. And it does. It matters a whole lot. I was talking to one guy from here who likes training up apprentices, and he said, I don't actually care too much about the skills, although that's important. But he says, the thing I love most about engaging with an apprentice is that I get to talk about life to them. He says, I often find myself saying these words to them. You know, intuitively in life, we think that if we get what we want, it's going to make us happy. But he says, I tell my apprentices that if you learn to give, then you find counterintuitively that you get happy. It feels good. It feels right. Hugh Mackay would take those words and that experience in our life and he'd press it a little bit deeper and he'd say, if you're even trying to do good stuff to make you feel good, that's kind of not what it's on about. What you need to do is actually practice do unto others without any return for yourself, without any even looking at it to be something that's, that's good for you, what you need to do is apply this idea of do unto others as they would. He said, I reckon if you ask most Australians here, that all agree with that, that that is a good maxim to live by. Do we agree? Do we think that's good? I think it's good. About two months ago, I was um, getting a piece of furniture down in Melbourne City. And I'd looked up online on the internet, and there was this particular furniture cabinet down in the city. And I went down there, and I was there at, as soon as the doors opened so I could secure it. The only problem was there was another guy that was the only guy that was working there at this furniture store and uh, his cash register wasn't working. The computer went down and the two of those things were connected. The second thing I noticed about his experience though is that he was there by himself. So there was just me and him and then all these other people started to come through. So he was profusely apologetic as he was on the phone trying to call for IT support so that he could actually get his cash register going so people could leave with items in their hands. Well, I saw what was happening and it took a little while for the whole thing to get going. The credit card started to work. And so I thought, look, I'll help him. He can't leave the shop. I'll just start helping customers take their furniture goods to their car. And, and, and so I did. I helped one lady out and we walked. I said, it's okay, I can do it. And I just was walking out. I had time to kill. It was a Friday. It was a day off, okay? That's not, I'm not doing it on NCR time. And, and, and I was putting things in the car and I came back again and, and I, I was sort of helping out around the shop as you do. And um, then I was kind of like the last person in the shop and he looked across to me and he said, man, what do you do? And I said, um, oh, I'm a minister of a church, actually. He goes, ah, that would explain it. And I thought, that's good. He thinks ministers of churches should be doing kind of nice things, yeah? And uh, he said, well, um, I wonder if you can help me. I've got a problem. You know, when someone says that and the warning lights start to, you know, danger. 
You start looking around, am I the only one in the shop here? And he goes, I've got this problem. I wonder if you can help me with it. I said, what's that? He goes, well, um, I'm married and I really care for my wife and um, I have a daughter and we both love dearly. Um, but my problem is that I'm discovering that I'm gay right now and I'm wondering what I should do. <laughs> and I'm like, great, right? I just came to help people move their furniture from you want to give me that one you know that's hard I mean that's not just hard that's hard 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 and 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 I said to him as I'm like can someone please you know when you're just like I just I just wanted an easy day today you know and but it was a good question it was hard and and I like him and and we talked and I said this I said you know what all I can tell you because we're we're leading up into this series and I said all I can tell you is that our culture our culture says this, if you want to be happy, you need to serve yourself first. I said, I'm not sure in our culture if we do enough to applaud anyone who makes any sacrifices in their life for the sake of someone else. I said, I wonder what your daughter will think in 15 years' time if she knew, and, and I know that he'd been honest with his wife and the two of them been wrestling this through, if, if you would, someone would choose to celebrate all the other good things in their life, the other good relationship you have with your wife and the, celebrate the good things about growing up with your daughter and, and, and your presence in their lives, I, I wonder if we don't as a culture celebrate anyone who chooses a hard road for the sake of all the other goods that you want to cultivate too. So the last thing I can do is actually tell you what to do. But I just wonder... And then someone else came into the, and I'm like, whew, man. <sighs> we talked some more and we said goodbye. And eh. You see, I reckon that the idea of doing good to others, do unto others as they would have them do unto you, is, is good in principle, isn't it? But sometimes it's not always easy to work out what that looks like. Are we agreed? Is that true? In fact, uh, even, even Hugh McKay, he goes on and he says this. Brutally honest about us as humans, from a sociologist's point of view, he says, the truth about us is that we're all frail, we're all flawed, we're all fragile, we're all feeble, as well as many other unflattering things. He says, sometimes we can be incredibly selfish and sometimes we can be incredibly selfless. He says, the, the bad people can do good and the good people can do bad. Isn't that true? He says, the, the way in which we need to, because I'm looking for the answer here, is the way in which we need to do something about this is that we need to learn. We need to learn not to do bad, and we need to learn to do good. That sounds good in principle too, apart from the car accident that happened in front of my house <laughs> about uh, two weeks ago, working out the front on a Friday again, just as it happens. <clears throat> and this car ran the red light, just as they normally do, just outside of our place, and slammed into a lady who was turning into our it spun her around so much that she did a 360 and up onto the embankment at less than 30 meters from me. Ran to her. She was safe. She was just completely in shock. Other people ran from all other directions. The guy who ran the red light and hit her, he stumbled literally out of his car in the middle of the intersection, fell onto the nature strip. People came from everywhere to attend. And in the midst of all of that chaos, there was one person in the crowd. His car had been waiting for a few minutes. He started to bip his horn and wave his hand and say, come on, move out, come on, I'm waiting here. And I just thought, my goodness, doesn't that just sum it up right there? Do unto others 
as they would have them do unto you. You see, what I find with Hugh, he's a brilliant sociologist, he wants to take the ethical words of Jesus but rob him of his eternal power. You see, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was about to experience something about the profound love and power to change someone's life in just a short space of time, and he had no idea. The Bible in the book of Luke tells us this. Jesus entered Jericho, the lowest city in the world, and was passing through. And a man there that was there by the name of Zacchaeus, we're about to learn four things about Zacchaeus, this, this interesting character. Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Those two things are synonymous in, those, in that culture. The way that taxation worked in the Roman Empire is that you'd kind of put it out like a tendering process. Anyone who could collect the most and at the cheapest uh, affordable price would usually get the gig, which meaning there was a lot of underhanded skullduggery and all kinds of things that would go on to secure these. And he was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Why? Because he was collecting taxes off his own people. So Zacchaeus was not like the most welcomed person in civilized culture back then because he was not only working to get himself ahead, but he was actually working for a foreign occupying power. Could you imagine that? Living in the same community as others, but you're working for the enemy. And we find out the third thing is that he wanted to see Jesus. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. I love this bit. We we find that there's this short wealthy chief tax collector, and he wants to see Jesus. See, there's something about Jesus that he may have heard. Maybe he heard Jesus say that there is a father who dwells in the heavenly spaces that you can't quite see, but he's here in the flesh, and I want to tell you that his message to you is welcome and invite. You are of infinite worth, and if you would come to him, you are welcome too, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. You are welcome all the same. So maybe he's heard these words of Jesus, but because he's short, he can't get through the crowd, so he does something that you and I would find. I mean, this is the part where we're supposed to laugh a little, yeah? In the Bible, you're allowed to laugh at things. So what did he do? It's very industrious. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Isn't this good? I mean, has anyone here ever found that when you go to work in the morning time or you just go and drop off the kids at school, someone is waiting for you in a tree? Isn't that kind of a bit unusual? But maybe in this culture it was perfectly valid because what Zacchaeus doesn't know is that he's about to have an encounter with Jesus that will be life transforming. When Jesus reached the spot, instead of passing by, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Jesus knew his name. Zacchaeus, come on down. And then Jesus does something quite profound. I must stay at your house today. That's good cultural inviting, isn't it? Hey, I know you. First time we've met. Your name's Zacchaeus. I want to come to your place. Wow. You see, it seems that Jesus knew Zacchaeus. Knew all about him. He doesn't take the opportunity to say, Hey, I've got a few things I want to talk about to you because now you're caught up in a tree. He says, What I want to do is actually come to your house. Because I want to spend time with you. You're a value. You see, Zacchaeus, he didn't need to be told that he's doing some stuff that kind of wasn't good. You know, in any of our lives, whenever we're doing stuff that we're not happy about, the last thing we want is someone else to come and tell us, right? But what we love is when someone actually says, 
you're of worth and value to me. I want to come and spend time with you. And so that's exactly what he does. So he came down and at once he welcomed him gladly. And all the people that saw this began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of that good-for-nothing, low-down, low-life Zacchaeus. That's dinner. And then somewhere in the midst of a dinner party with Jesus, this is what happens. A transformation occurs. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Master, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Wow. <laughs> what is it, animals and kids? <laughs> I like that. You see, something transformative has just happened in the life of Zacchaeus. A power has just reached into his heart and his soul that no amount of learning could actually accomplish. He's actually discovered the power of a loving God and a life that's indwelling within him and that's making all of the changes. Oh, don't get me wrong here this morning, you don't have to follow Jesus to do good, but I tell you this, there's something that Jesus offers in spades that we all want. You see, we all want to go to bed of a nighttime, put our head down on the pillow, and be at peace with ourselves, with our world, and with our maker. We all want to wake up in the morning with a sense of meaning and purpose, caught up in something that's bigger than ourselves. And we all want to experience a sense of hope, that fuel that actually keeps us going. And Zacchaeus was about to discover that when you actually come to know Jesus, not out of duty, but out of a heart that sees him for who he is, the one who came to die and rise again, for him, it changes everything. So now Zacchaeus joins Jesus in his wanting to actually restore and fix this broken world. In fact, Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Have you ever considered that God is actually on about wanting to fix this world that he loves, that he thinks is of infinite worth, but he wants to actually empower us to join him in doing just that. Because when he pours his love in, it flows out. You see, Jesus also said this. What's the greatest commands? Love God with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as you would yourself. How do we do that? We do it to the best of our ability. When we fall short... You find when you rub shoulders with Jesus, he empowers and he transforms and he infuses his love in to us. That's the experience of Zacchaeus. You see, religion is about trying to get people to do stuff that they don't really want to do and threatening them along the way. What Jesus offers each one is a relationship that's eternal that reaches into the future and transforms the present. Zacchaeus was getting pulled into God's big picture of partnering with him in transforming his world for good until he comes and does it in full. The band's going to come right now and they're going to sing a song or, and they're going to be a time for us to reflect and to consider, and maybe to pray, maybe to join with them in response. 
But I'm reminded of a story about a young little boy who was walking along a beach, and some of you have probably heard this before, and it was scattered with starfish. Starfish all over. They'd been washed up, and he was on about helping them find their way back. So he'd pick a starfish up and he'd throw it out into the water and he'd walk along and pick up another one and he'd throw that one out too and he's just walking his way along the beach. Well, a big grown-up person came up to him and said, what are you doing? Don't you know that you are making no difference whatsoever in this world? Look, this, this shore is covered with starfish. You're not making any difference here. To which the little boy looked up at the man and he picked up another starfish and threw it in the water. Then made a difference to that one. Picked up another one and threw it in. Made a difference to that one and that one. What I discover is when you draw close to Jesus, there's more love than you can imagine. When you open your hands to him, he's more than willing to Wash them. For when we don't do unto others. And what I find is that he opens up our minds and our hearts to God's bigger picture and he bids us to come, to give him our good and, our, and to allow it to be wrapped up in a bigger tapestry that he's doing. Now with him and his family and serving others. It's a wonderful picture and verse in the Bible and it goes like this. My dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable when life gets hard and when it just seems too overwhelming and you're wondering if you're making a difference in the everyday course of your lives as you're wanting to live for God and please Him. Always work enthusiastically for God for you know that nothing you do for Him is ever useless. You see, in God's estimation... He seems to be willing to take all of our little bits, cups of water, roofs on skilled buildings, resources for kids to learn. And he weaves them into his tapestry of what he's doing, of wanting to transform his world for good. But he first wants to restore and to fix us. That's what he's doing. If you're here this morning and you haven't even said to God for a while, you know, God, would you use these hands? I wonder my challenge to you this morning is that you might pray a simple prayer. God, will you use these hands to do your good bidding this week? Maybe you're here this morning and the whole idea of even opening up your heart and saying, and Jesus, if you're real, would you meet with me today? I dare you to pray that. And see what he does.